In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? How do these teachings strike you? What feelings do they stir up? Is it glad affirmation or anger and resentment? Maybe embarrassment or bewilderment. Maybe it's a mix of feelings, varying degrees of ambivalence. Or maybe you just want to file this part of the Bible under an unfortunate relic of the past. I must confess, when I hear St. Paul telling women, children, and slaves to submit to their social superiors in the same kind of devotion with which we are all to submit to Christ, I begin to feel sympathy for those disciples in our gospel reading who find themselves suddenly perplexed and offended at Jesus' words. This was the miracle worker. He fed a multitude with five barley loaves and two fish. We had thought he was the Messiah. We even tried to make him king. But then he said we had to eat his flesh and drink his blood. We don't know what to do with that. We can't get past it. It's too bizarre, too perverse. Similarly, we might be asking ourselves, is this the same Paul who told the Galatians that in Christ there is no longer Jew and Greek? There is no longer slave and free. There is no longer male and female. Why is he now not only affirming those distinctions, but doubling down on the obedience demanded of the subordinate party? We had such high hopes for this radically inclusive gospel. It seemed to be tipping the scales of power, placing everyone on equal footing. But this is an unlooked-for and unwelcome return to the status quo. Maybe we, too, find ourselves disillusioned and saying this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? Before we go running for the exits, I want to remind us of an important observation that Father James made last week. Our lectionary readings each Sunday morning do not stand alone in isolation. They are trees, so to speak, in a much larger forest that we would do well to remember if we want to understand them. In short, we need to pay attention to context. As a professor of mine once quipped, a text without a context is a pretext for your own subtext. So let us not be too hasty to dismiss what we have heard, as troubling as it may sound. Let us sit with this difficult teaching and try to attend to its context. The first contextual layer I want to point out is literary. St. Paul's exhortations in Ephesians 5 and 6 exemplify a literary genre of household codes common in the ancient world. The Romans were wary of the many minority religious groups throughout the empire, in part because they feared competing moral influence might undermine traditional Roman family values. So it was common for these religious groups to publish household codes in their moral writings that could be shown to support the values of broader Roman society. We see examples of this elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, Colossians 3, Titus 2, and 1 Peter 2. This tells us that Paul is not making these rules up. 
he is adapting the values of his society in a recognizable format that seems at first blush to be reinforcing those values. But on closer inspection, that isn't what he's doing at all. Our first hint that Paul is up to something comes from another context cue, the rhetorical setting of our passage. There's a summary statement in verse 21, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be subject to one another. This gives us at the outset the theme of all that follows. The relationships between husband and wife, father and child, master and slave, these are all to be seen as test cases in how this overarching ethic is to be lived out. Mutual submission. We cannot help but notice that this is a curious guiding principle to apply to relationships that, by the standards of Roman society, are marked by a significant imbalance of power. So what happens to the Roman household code when this ethic of mutual submission becomes the guiding principle? To begin with, those without power are given agency. Paul speaks directly to the subordinate parties in these relationships, wives, children, and slaves, as agents who must make a choice to subject themselves. This may not sound like a terribly generous concession, but consider that most household codes of the time were addressed only to those in power. The fact that the subordinate parties are addressed at all as moral agents alongside their superiors is already an unusual feature that bends this Christian version of the household codes in line with the ethic of mutual submission. We see this made even more explicit in the reciprocity that Paul applies to each of these relationships. The subordinate parties are not the only ones called to subject themselves. For instance, after apparently intensifying the slave's duties, Paul turns to the master and says, do the same to them. What? Do the same to my slave as he does to me? This takes mutual submission to a level that would have shocked and probably scandalized the broader society. And we find this same reciprocity repeated in Paul's exhortation to fathers and to husbands. While children should obey their parents, fathers should not provoke their children. And while wives are told to be subject to their husbands, as the church is subject to Christ, husbands are commanded to love their wives with the same self-sacrificial love with which Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The Roman rules are left in place, but they are subverted at the same time, replacing oppressive imbalances of power with reciprocal postures of self-sacrifice and mutual submission. The next contextual layer I want to draw our attention to is theological. One of the dominant theological themes that we have heard repeated this summer as we've worked our way through the epistle to the Ephesians is that the body of Christ is the ground of unity for the church. At the end of chapter 1, the church is identified as the body of Christ, of which he is the head. And in chapter 2, Paul states quite clearly that it is because Jews and Gentiles have been united together in this same body that there is no longer any division between them. In his flesh, Paul writes, he has made both groups into one 
and has broken down the dividing wall, the hostility between us. In chapter 3, Paul reveals that this union of Jew and Gentile in one body is the very mystery from ages past that the gospel has now made known. And when Paul turns in chapter 4 to exhort the church in how its members ought to live, it is no surprise that the body of Christ remains an ever-present theme. As Deacon Mary pointed out a few weeks ago, the word we hear translated in chapter 4, verse 12, as equip, comes from a verb that means to mend or set right in the sense of setting a bone. This suggests the restorative, healing power of unity in one body that Paul goes on to develop further. The gifts that Christ gives to the members of the church are for, building, are for the building up of the body until all of us come to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. There is a sense here of our ongoing development as we continue to be knit together and to grow up in the one body of Christ. This is what the Christian life is all about. And it is worth mentioning here that the body of Christ is not simply a metaphor. The incarnation is not a metaphor. The second person of the Trinity did not metaphorically take on human flesh. God really has united himself irrevocably with humanity. And when we are baptized into Christ's body, we really are united with him. When we partake of the Eucharist, we really do partake of Christ's body and blood. We take him into ourselves as he takes us into himself. To be sure, this is a profound mystery. It is the very mystery that the disciples in John 6 were stumbling over. But it is a reality. And it is this reality that is the basis of our communion with one another. We really are members of one another as we are members together of Christ's body. And it is in this context of the unity that we have in Christ's body that Paul gives his version of the Roman household rules. In this context, it is no longer shocking that masters should be told to treat their slaves in the same way that their slaves treat them. As members of the same body, they are together in the same standing before their mutual Lord, Christ, their head. It is also no longer to satisfy the service owed to a Roman patriarch that children should obey their parents. They are to obey their parents in the Lord. And fathers are not to provoke their children, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. For both, parents, for both parent and child stand as children of the one father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name, as we heard in Ephesians 3 a few weeks ago. Turning now to husbands and wives, the body becomes an even more determinative framework. Paul spends more time on his exhortation to husbands and wives than on the other two relationships, and the body is a central theme. As a Jew, Paul approaches marriage through the lens of Genesis 2. The well-known story narrates the origin of woman as the creation of God, taken from the very flesh of the man's body. This then becomes the basis for marriage. The union of male and female flesh in the marriage bond is a reunion of original 
human flesh into one body, which then issues forth in new human life. Paul, in fact, quotes Genesis 2 in Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This helps to make sense of why Paul equates a husband's love for his wife with love of his own body. But Paul is ultimately not interested in promoting a vision of marriage for its own sake. He is recasting the Jewish understanding of marriage and the institution of marriage itself as an image or sign of the relationship between Christ and the church. This is a great mystery, Paul writes in verse 32, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. Our relationship to Christ as members of his body is the deeper reality of which marriage is but the sign. Of course, it also deeply affects how husbands and wives ought to treat one another. And it means that no one is lording power over the other. Here, too, the ethic of mutual submission applies. For though Paul tells wives to be subject to their husbands, husbands must remember not only that the call for them is to love their wives with nothing less than the self-sacrificial love of Christ, they must also remember that they stand together with their wives as the bride of Christ subject to him in everything. So while the, former, while the formal structure of the Roman household codes remains intact, the relationships themselves are transformed by an ethic of mutual submission born of the church's common identity in and as the body of Christ. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. You and I are members of the same body. Your good is my good. And as Father James reminded us a few weeks ago, when one of us suffers, we all suffer. What then might it look like for us at all souls to live out this ethic of mutual submission in our little corner of the body of Christ? Any answer we give to that question finds its source in what we heard last week at the beginning of Ephesians 5. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We submit to one another by giving something of ourselves to one another in recognition that we are members of the same body. Who I am and what I have is a gift from God that I am in turn called to give to you for building up the body of Christ. We do this in many ways at All Souls. Over the summer, we have heard from many of our fellow souls who have shared with us something of who they are and what they have been given. Whether it's the story of how they've weathered the last year, the artistic works of their hands and their imaginations, or the work of their vocation in the broader community, these souls have given us something of themselves for our benefit, for our encouragement and edification. I only regret that I have not been able to attend more of these. We also submit to one another through the many services we come together to perform in order to sustain the life of our parish. From serving coffee between services, to caring for the church building, to the service of the altar, to teaching and caring for our children, to paying the bills, searching for our next rector, praying for our community, and so much more. But there is one ministry of submission that is perhaps less obvious. It has been a vital one for me 
and I think for the life of our community in helping us to process the difficulties of the last 18 months. And I believe it remains a vital work. The ministry I have in mind here is listening. It is not a complicated work, and it is something we all can do. But it is often a hard work. For the ministry of listening is not a listening to respond. It is not a listening so that I know how best to defend myself or how to point out why you're wrong or even how to decide what action to take next. The ministry of listening is listening simply to understand. It is the gift of presence and attention, the gift of my silence as I hold space open to hear and to receive whatever you have to say. And it is especially difficult when what you have to say is hard for me to hear. We might remember again the disciples who part ways with Jesus in our gospel reading. But in this context, I think a more literal rendering of the Greek is more instructive. This is a hard word. Who can hear it? We have heard many hard words in the last 18 months. We have heard that our former rector was removed for abusing his office and those entrusted to his care. We have heard that our bishop was removed for mishandling a separate prior case of clerical misconduct. We have heard a summary of the results of the investigation into our former rector's actions. We have heard of further abuse and failures of leadership in our neighboring diocese. And we have heard the voices of some of the victims wounded by all of this. Most recently, we have heard the story of two of those victims from our own body here at All Souls in the form of the public letter that Angela and Laura published late last month. All of these words have struck us in different ways. We respond with a host of strong and often competing emotions. We feel anger, sadness, hurt, and bewilderment. And we have all probably felt at different times and for different reasons, like those among Jesus' followers who decided to part ways. We are only too painfully aware of those who have decided to leave. And the words we speak to one another in response to all that has happened can be very hard to hear. But I want to suggest to us that the way we can practice the ethic of mutual submission is to stay and listen, to hear the hard words we have to speak to one another. Those of you who have participated in the listening groups here at All Souls know that this is precisely the work that we do in those meetings. We do not all agree. We bring different perspectives. Sometimes we are responding to different, often conflicting information. But we submit to one another by saying, I am here to hold space open for whatever you need to say because I love you as my fellow member of the one body of Christ. None of this is to say that getting the facts straight is unimportant or that the actions we take next as a parish, as a diocese, and as a province in response to the failures of the last 18 months is somehow of lesser value. 
But if St. Paul is saying anything to us in Ephesians, it is this, that those who were once at odds with each other are reconciled by being made members of the one body of Christ. So when we find ourselves at odds with one another again from within that body, the way forward is not to make enemies of our fellow members, but to subject ourselves to them out of reverence to Christ. And that work begins with listening by saying, this is a hard word, but I am here to listen to it. May God give us grace in this season to listen to one another with love and grace. And through it, may he continue to do the work of healing that he has begun among us. Amen. Amen.